0: Good morning. It's my joy to read here from God's Word now. Uh, We're starting a new series, as you know. It's uh, chapter 6 of Romans, and if you're using the Church Bibles, you'll find that on page 914. We're reading the first 14 verses. It's Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. I have confidence that it'll come up behind me as well. It is. So it's Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God, as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace.
1: Thanks, Kevin. Friends, let me pray. Lord God, we ask that you would give us understanding of your text this morning, your word, your truth, and that you would so move by your spirit that we would be uh, men and women who would make a commitment to live for your glory, to reject sin, to pursue holiness through the power of your spirit for the glory of your name. Amen. Prince Philip Yancey in his book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, says during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what if any Belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. They said uh, the incarnation, well, other religions had different versions of God's appearing in human form. What about the resurrection? Well, again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. He says, what's the rumpus about? What's the discussion about? said, well, we're discussing Christianity's unique contribution amongst world religions. Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And after some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, ...and the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Friends, God's grace is in some sense shocking, unfair, unbelievable. It was rejected in the first century by the Jewish people that Paul is dealing with. It's often rejected by people today and even in some religions... Even some religions who call themselves Christians. The thought that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by our works, that we don't contribute to our salvation, doesn't seem right to them. Paul addresses the misunderstanding of grace in Romans 6 and the implication of grace. But before we get there, let me remind you of what comes before Romans 6. Last year, we did a series in Romans chapter 1 to 5. Today, we're looking at 6 to 8 as a series over the next five or six weeks. We saw that the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. We saw that we are all under God's judgment due to our sin and rebellion, chapter 1.18 through to 3.20. We saw that God has made a way for us to be made right with God apart from the law, Not obedience to the Old Testament law that saves you. There's a different way. We are made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, 322. We are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, 324. It is all made possible through the atoning sacrifice of Christ, 325. In Romans 4, Paul told us that the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament believers like Abraham, were justified by faith, not by obedience to the law. Even the Old Testament believers were saved by faith, he says. This is not a new thing, he writes to the Romans. And we saw in chapter 5 that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's great news through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now John Stott writes in his commentary, Men Made New, we have discovered from Romans 5 that peace with God, a continuing relationship of grace now and of glory in the world to come is the first privilege of the believer. The second, he says, unfolded in Romans 6 that we will look at today is his union with Christ, a state that leads to holiness. We now have a union with Christ. We are united to Christ in a a profound way that overflows in holiness and not in sinfulness. So the great theme of Romans 6, and in particular verses 1 to 11, is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are not only historical facts and significant doctrines, that they are, but personal experiences of the Christian believer They are events in which we ourselves have come to share. Hold on to this truth that we share in the death and resurrection of Christ. All Christians have been united to Christ in his death and resurrection. Further, if this is true, if we have died with Christ and risen with Christ, it is inconceivable that we should go on living in sin. But Paul knows That is, preaching on grace and our preaching on grace can be interpreted as license to do anything you like. If we are saved by God's mercy and grace, then it doesn't matter if we sin. Sin as much as you like. God will forgive you. That is false, and Paul's going to address that issue here. He knows the Jews to whom he wrote would misunderstand his teaching. And I've had many conversations with people today, they say, if it's all grace, it's going to lead to sin and immorality because they don't understand grace. You see, in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul and his uh, believers were accused of saying, let us do evil that good may result. He said, well, no, 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 no. We don't do evil. In 5, verse 20, Part B said, where sin increased, as we became aware of our sin through the law, grace increased all the more, some would misunderstand and attack his message of grace. And some people have misunderstood grace. As I said, if if it is all grace, you can just sin and get away with it. Cheat on your partner, steal from your friend, lie to your neighbour. Well, God's going to forgive you. Doesn't matter. Just repent later. It's what some people think. Well, if it's all grace, and this is the argument here, well, the more we sin, the more God gets an opportunity to forgive us and show his grace. So let's keep sinning more so God shows his grace more, shows what a great God he is. So, a woman once asked for prayer for her brother. I was reading this story. And the pastor said, what's your brother's situation? Well, you know, he made a decision for Jesus when he was 18. But, you know, he's on drugs, he sleeps around, he doesn't attend church, he shows no interest in spiritual things. So that's worth praying for. And she said, I know he's saved, he's just out of fellowship. He's not just saved, he's not saved at all, right? He said, How long has he been out of fellowship? Oh, he hasn't been in church for 30 years. Do you see how we can misunderstand grace and the work of Jesus? Just because you prayed a prayer once doesn't mean you're saved. The sign that you are in Christ, that you've been united to Christ, is that it overflows in holiness and obedience and glory to Jesus. If someone's been out of fellowship for 30 years, I want to pray that get converted. Amen? Because when the Spirit of God touches your life, takes hold of you, He will not leave you the same. When you understand justification by faith, that you are united to Christ, you just want to obey him, you want to live for him, you want to live for his glory. You want to bless others. You don't want to walk in sinfulness, you want to walk in holiness. And if you don't care about walking in holiness, let me say to you, you need to get converted. So what does it say in the text? There's a question. Point one, shall we keep on sinning that grace may increase? This is what he's been accused of. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? I said Paul's argument in previous chapters was that we are saved by grace. It has nothing to do with our good works. But the critics objected, that's crazy. Paul, don't teach grace. Well, people will think they can do what they like. Parties, sin, cheat, abuse. Paul, when you teach grace, it leads to sin. If it all depends on God, there's no reason to obey God. It will lead to lawlessness and immorality. It will weaken our sense of moral responsibility. And further, if as sin increased, the law led to the exposing of sin and provoking it, grace increased. Shouldn't we sin more that grace might increase? There was a Russian monk called Gregory Rasputin who dominated the Romanov family in their final years. He lived between 1869 and 1916. He wasn't a very good monk. He taught that salvation came through a repeated experience of sin and repentance. He argued that those who sin most require most forgiveness... And so a sinner who continues to sin with abandon enjoys each time he repents more of God's forgiving grace than an ordinary sinner. Go out there, sin more, you get more of God's grace. It's like this, isn't it, what Paul is addressing. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Corinthian Christians were directed to excommunicate a man who was living in an incestuous relationship. And said, so why are you letting this guy stay? You should have corrected him. You should have asked him to live in holiness. They'll believe and oh, no, that's great. Good on you. Keep sinning. Nothing wrong with that. Sometimes people say to me, you know, the church in the 21st century has some difficulties. We make mistakes. Now, the church in the 1st century had some difficulties. Amen? <laughs> we all are dealing with the same issues. Sinfulness, wrong understanding, misunderstanding grace, then or now. Ungodliness then, ungodliness now. Arrogance then, arrogance now. Paul says, by no means. We have died to sin. He's horrified by the thought that we will keep sinning now that we're in Christ. God forbid, he says. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Remember, we have died to the penalty of sin because Jesus died in our place. But secondly, we have died to the reign of sin or the dominion of sin in our lives. Because when we come to Christ, not only are we not punished for our sin because Christ has died in our place, but we have now died to the reign or dominion of sin in our lives. Sure, we will sin because we're human and we were fallen and we, it's not until you get to heaven that you stop sinning. But sin no longer has to be your master, no longer has to reign in your life. When we become Christians, a decisive step takes place. It is the beginning of faith and the end of the reign of sin. Sin no longer has control in us. God transforming grace does Sin is our old life. Sin no longer has to dominate us. We are now Christians. And Paul wants to give them a picture of, so they can understand their newness of life. It says, We're united to Christ. It says, Remember your baptism. If you don't understand dying to sin, he says, think about your baptism. And baptism the New Testament was administered immediately after someone put their faith in Jesus. He says, don't you realize what happened when you became Christians and were baptized? If you understood this, you would not keep on cheerfully sinning. The baptized have died to all of that. He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be also united with him in a resurrection like his. We are baptised into Christ, he says. A Christian is not merely a justified believer. He is someone who has entered into a vital personal union with Christ. Baptism signifies our union with Christ. And friends, baptism in the New Testament is a dramatic ordinance. It indicates not just that God washes away our sin, takes it away, not just that he gives us the Holy Spirit, that by his sheer grace, he places us into Christ. You are now united to Christ. It's not that the outward rite of baptism secures our salvation, our union, but he means that this union with Christ, invisibly affected by faith, is visibly signified and sealed by baptism. Those things go together, faith and baptism in the New Testament. It's not faith and 10 years later I might get baptised. No, come to faith be baptized in water, and that visibly signifies and seals your conversion. It says, baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection. These verses probably allude to the pictorial symbolism of baptism. When baptisms took place uh, in the first century, normally in some open-air stream. i baptized people in rivers, Cronulla Beach, uh, George's River and Oakley, And there's something about that image where you walk down into the water and then the person is placed under the water, they're immersed. Immersion was a symbol of death and burial. That's what baptism tells us. This is what Paul wants them to understand. Don't you understand that when you're baptised, you're dead and buried under the water? As you come out of the water and then walk out back onto dry land, portrays the whole idea that they are raised with Jesus as they walk from the site of their baptism, and they begin to walk in newness of life. Dead and buried, you come out, raised with Jesus, and you start to walk away, now into your new life. So by faith inwardly and by baptism outwardly, we're united to Christ in his death and resurrection. In some mystical, spiritual way, we actually shared in his death, burial, and resurrection, is what he says. The point is this. When we were baptised, we died. We were buried with Christ. Our old way of life has passed away. Our former existence came to an end. A new life began. There is no way we should continue sinning as if nothing has changed. A radical change has happened. We walk in newness of life. Living a holy life is not an option, but a necessary part of being saved in Christ. He goes on to verse 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we shall no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So the old self was crucified with him. As someone said, the old man is dead. The past is gone. Our sinful nature is still here, but our unregenerate life has gone. In the past, before I became a Christian at the age of 15, I lived in rebellion toward God. When I came to faith in Jesus, I now live in submission to him, no longer in rebellion to him. The person you were before Christ has been judged, condemned, executed, buried and finished forever. The new man lives. Friends, I think the church in the Western world has to understand this truth. Because as I look at the Western world and the Christian world in the West, I wonder whether at times we think holiness is old-fashioned. Obedience is old-fashioned. We're free to do what we like. Because sometimes I don't see much difference between the Christian and the non-Christian and how some people live. I need to hear what I'm preaching today. So the body ruled by sin might be done away with rendered powerless, defeated, nullified. The sinful nature is not annihilated. And this is our struggle, but deprived of its power. It's still there, and we'll know from Galatians and other passages that, you know, there's a spiritual battle taking place to walk according to the Spirit. It comes out in Galatians. But the power of sin is broken in the believer. You no longer have to walk. That way, and then he goes on. He says, "We are no longer slaves to sin. In our natural state, we're unable to resist sin, and we were slaves. But now we're Christians. We're now in Christ, united to Him. Now filled with the Holy Spirit, we're different. Because anyone who has died has been set free or justified from sin." He says, "The person who has died with Christ is literally justified. That's the Greek word. It's justified." He is released both from the penalty of sin and also in union with Christ from the power of sin. Keep those two things. I've mentioned it earlier and I'll mention it again. Penalty of sin, we're set free. Power of sin, we can also be set free from that. Union with Christ removes the penalty and allows God's transforming work to work in us. And Paul seems to be broadening the use of the word justification here. If you're familiar with that word. For just as the person has been exonerated, picture this in a court of law, imagine you're a court of law, you're guilty, and then you're declared innocent. You walk out of the court, take a taxi home, you're justified. You're declared innocent. So the justified believer, in addition to his technical justification, he's declared right with God by faith, has the practical freedom to walk away from the dominating power of sin in his life free from the penalty of sin, free from the power of sin. Don't come to me and say, and I often say, I just can't help it. Yes, you can. <laughs> I cannot say, I just couldn't help it. Yes, I can. I'm in Christ now. I have the Holy Spirit now. Verse 8, and if we died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. He continues in verse 9. We know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Through his death, Jesus Christ, he just drives at home. He's dealt with sin. He became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He's dealt with our sin. He took it away. He paid the penalty. He removed its sting, 1 Corinthians 15. He won the victory over it. Christ has dealt with our sin. And that's why with the passing of Barry Taylor and the passing of Sue Kennedy, there is sting in death. Our loved ones have died. We grieve their loss. But there is a future eternity with Christ. Christ. Christ has won. Death has not won. Christ is victorious. He now lives with God and all those who believe in him will live with him. We need to think ourselves of our lives in the same way. We now live for God and for his glory. And then he goes on in verse 11 though, he says, how do we like, sure, sin no longer has dominion over us, no longer has to control us because we are united to Christ and we have the Holy Spirit what's something practical he says we had to reckon ourselves dead to sin verse 11 count yourselves dead to sin but alive to god in christ jesus see it matters how you think about these things he says count reckon consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to god we had to regard ourselves as being what in fact we are The old life has ended. The score has been settled. The debt has been paid. The law has been satisfied. Sin no longer has reign in our lives. And John Stott puts it this way. I love his illustration. He says, I want you to think about your life for a moment, he says. Our biography is written in two volumes, right? Volume one is the story of the old man or the old woman, the old self, of me before my conversion. Volume two is the story of the new man, the new woman, the new self, of me after I was made a new creation in Christ. There's two volumes. The first volume, before Christ. The next volume. The first one's done away with. It's over. We now live a new life. It's volume two. Volume one ended with the judicial death of the old self. I was a sinner. I deserved to die. I deserved my desserts. I received my deserts in my substitute, Jesus, with whom I have become one. Sin no longer reigns. Volume 2 of my biography opened with my resurrection. I walked out of the water at my baptism, dead and buried, came up, resurrected, walked out to my new life. This is volume 2 of my biography. My life is finished and a new life has begun. And Stott says, we have to keep saying to ourselves, volume 1 has closed. You're now living in volume 2. Don't open up volume 1. Amen? Amen. It's done. It's finished. Don't go back. And what I notice when people, sometimes you get older and, and you're bored and, uh, and life and you get distracted and you get uh, more irritated. I turned 62 this week. And, and all of a sudden, you know, you don't take it as serious. Oh, I can't be bothered anymore. The older you get, the closer you get to Jesus. Keep pursuing holiness. Keep shouting, making sure that volume one is dead. You've been living in volume two. Don't go back to volume one. Because you can't be bothered fighting the truth any, or fighting for truth any longer and for holiness. Volume one has closed, brothers and sisters. Live in volume two. Don't leave volume one. Or well, can a married woman, though, live as though she were still a single girl? Yes, she can, can't she? It's not impossible. But let her feel that ring on her fourth finger on her left hand, the symbol of her new life, the symbol of her identification with her husband. Let her remember who she is and live accordingly. Can a born-again Christian live as though he were still in his sins? Well, I suppose he can. It's not impossible. But let him remember his baptism the symbol of his identification with Christ and his death and resurrection, and let him live accordingly. Remember, he says, remember. When Satan whispers in your ear, come on, go on, you can sin. God will forgive you. And you're tempted to presume upon the grace of God, Oh God will forgive me, that's right. Say in verse 2, by no means, Satan, I died to sin, how can I live in it? Volume 1 is closed, I'm in volume 2. Friends, this it's an ongoing battle for, for holiness the life of a Christian it's not that it's now impossible for us to sin we know that we are fallen sinners but it is inconsistent with our new life and union with Christ and the secret of holy living is in the mind know that your old self was crucified with Christ baptism into Christ is baptism to his death and resurrection reckoning intellectually realizing that in Christ we have died to sin and we live for God return to the old life is unthinkable it matters how you think. And finally, he says, we are refused to let sin reign in our lives. Therefore, in light of all of that, he says, let me sum up for you. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Don't let sin reign. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin. Don't let sin be your master. You have a choice. Turn off the internet. Don't read certain books. Hold your tongue when you're going to say the unkind thing. In Christ, we've been given the off switch. You don't have to live like you did in the past. Let God lead you by his spirit to walk in step with the spirit and offer the parts of your body to holiness, not to wickedness. Maybe you're offering some part of your body, maybe some part of your mind to sin today. You think over the past week and you go, well, Feeling a little bit guilty this morning. That thing I said to my wife, or how I treated my son, my daughter, how I treated my colleague at work. I know volume one's dead and closed, but I tell you, I want to live in volume two, but I keep going back to volume one. I know I ought to offer my body to righteousness, but I keep offering it to sinfulness. Friends, if that's you, then you need to go to God and seek forgiveness and transformation. To talk to someone and say, I'm struggling with this. I keep offering my body to pornography or immorality or adultery or drunkenness or lying or gambling or selfishness or jealousy. Whatever it happens to be. So as you hear the word of God, you've got to allow the spirit of God to say, God, take hold of my heart and my mind. Where am I? Don't let me live in volume one. Offer yourself to God. Offer your parts instruments of righteousness. You say, take me, Lord, and use me for your glory, for the good of others, for the building up of your church. Shall we go on sinning, the conclusion? By no means, Paul says. We died to sin and are alive to God. By no means, he says. Remember your baptism. If you forget, remember, under the water, out of the water, walking to new life. But having said that, let me also say, maybe you've never I said, i got the faith, but I, I don't have the baptism. I don't have that image to remember. While I was under the water, I was placed and baptised, identifying with Christ as the Bible declares, death with Christ and burial under the water. You don't have that in your mind where you don't have a picture where you walked up out of the water, and then walked to the news of life. You've got the faith, but you never had the baptism. Maybe you need to be baptized, because that's God's image, that's God's symbol. And it just so happens to be oh, I didn't pick this passage for this reason it's National Baptist baptism week for Baptists across the nation. Started last week. They just invent, they said, we need to remind our people in churches that you have to have faith, but God calls you to be baptised as well. So you have that image, that picture in your minds. And in Baptist churches right across our nation this week, people are been uh, declaring their faith in Jesus Christ and being baptised. Maybe you need to be baptised. Happy to talk to you if that is your situation. It is my prayer that we would be empowered by God as you take hold of his word, to keep volume one closed, to walk in unison of life in volume two, to the glory of God. Amen. Lord God, I thank you for your word this morning from the Apostle Paul. Lord, it's so relevant to me, it is so relevant to us, because we are tempted, Lord, to live like the world. We are tempted to give in to sin and to excuse our sin and to presume upon your grace and not treat you as our loving God and Father. Jesus, not to treat you as our beautiful Savior. Holy Spirit, not to treat you as the one who comes to transform us. We prefer to reject you and to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin rather than walk in holiness. Cleanse us, our God, we pray. Make us holy. Help us to remember our baptism, that we died with Christ and we're buried with him. We were raised to new life and we walk in unison of life. Amen.